Turn to the book of James into the New Testament. If you need a little help, I feel like we've been on this uh, kind of long road trip and um, we have finally arrived back home. You know how that feels? You know, if you've been gone for a long, long time on the road and uh, you get back home and it just feels just feels like uh, well, it just feels like home. Right. You just take a just take a deep exhale and it just. Uh, you just feel that relief. That, that's how I feel jumping into the book of James. We have been, uh, looked last night, we've been almost a year uh, out of an exposition of a book of Scripture. And uh, that's not typical for us in our, in our first few years here as a new church. That is, uh, that is really atypical. But if, uh, if you think back to the last several months, we've been in a few... I guess what you call more topical series, but uh, I'd probably say more doctrinal series. We spent several weeks talking about the topic of biblical manhood and womanhood and what is what is God's design to be a man and what is God's design to be a woman? What does it mean to be husband, wife? How do they work together? Do they work together? Can they get along, etc.? We spent several weeks looking at that. Uh, and then we went into uh, a re-envisioning series. We came on to our four-year anniversary from the time we launched and we said we need to take a look back to the things that we said at the beginning were the basis of the starting of this new church. What did we say then was the reason for this church? What was our purpose? What was our vision? And so we did a series basically calling it the Reenvisioning series. And we said nothing really has changed. We just need to we need to catch everybody up who's new. We've had people come, we've had people move, we've we've just had we've just had the freshman class move up and a new freshman class come in, so to speak, and we, we felt like we need to re envision. We need to say what our purpose is again and very very simply, we are here to make disciples individually and as a congregation. Our job is to make disciples in this meantime, from the time that we've been saved, the resurrection of Jesus to the time we've been saved now to the time he comes back again. We have this we have this period of grace in Scripture where we are to be his uh, his lights and to be salt for him on this earth. And uh, we are to make disciples. And what do those disciples look like? We spell it out by saying we follow the Lord. Feed sheep and free the world. And we unpacked what all those meant in our re-envisioning series. And that took us several weeks. And then we went in to this, probably one of the more creative series we've done on the Lord's Supper, on communion. And each week we, we shared communion together, but in a, in a way that helped us not only to understand communion maybe in a different way than we had before, but to apply it in a different way, to, to link our communing with God to our real life everyday world. And so we, we wrap that up. And then when you throw in holidays and, you know, celebration Sundays, it's been almost a year. I, I was actually surprised myself. It's been that long. That's why I think uh, as I've gotten back now into studying a book to present to you, uh, it just felt like coming home. It just felt like this is where we need to be. And frankly, uh, if you've been around for a while, you know that that is really our bread and butter. I mean, it's our it's our Green Bay Packer power sweep of old. OK, that's what we go back to and back to and back to. That is, in fact, if you're looking for a church, that is one of the main things you probably need to be looking for is a church that doesn't just teach on this or that topic or uh, just randomly what the congregation might feel we need. But we stick to scripture. We explain scripture. Another reason I'm excited and I feel like, man, I'm glad to be back in the book of James is because as a pastor and, and frankly, all of my Christianity, I hear over and over from uh, people who are in the church. Uh, one of the main struggles is trying to read your Bible. 
You know, right? I mean, we've all said, in a sense, this at one point or another, that, man, I try and get in my Bible, but I start and I just don't understand some of it, and I get off track, and I just feel lost. I just kind of need a, a little bit of handle on it. I'm excited to take us through James, because if you, if you last the next few weeks, it's going to take us probably the rest of, through May, okay? If you, can, if you can hang with us through the book of James, give us a month here, right? And either be here and listen, or grab the podcast and listen, or grab a CD. I'm going to start trying to put CDs out. If you could stick through this, here's what you get. You'll have a handle on the book of James, okay? And that's a good thing, right? Uh, in fact, if you've been with us for a while, you've should have a handle on several books of Scripture. And so here's your opportunity. So let that, be, let that be a challenge to you and an encouragement. Stick this out. Make a commitment to learn the book of James over the next several weeks. I'm not going to give you everything there is to know. There's a whole lot of people out there a lot smarter than me. There's, there's hundreds of commentaries written on this small book. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you what I feel God is leading us to understand in the next few weeks. Uh, and you'll have a handle then. So let me encourage you to stick with us through that. There's some basic questions you want to ask anytime you're going to start a new, a new book of Scripture or a new letter of Scripture. Uh, in no particular order, let me just give you a few of them. You want to ask, for one, who is this letter or book of Scripture written to? Who is it written to? And the first verse of James chapter 1 tells us, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, James sends Greetings. Twelve tribes dispersed abroad primarily uh, means the Jewish Christians of that day, of that first century, who have been spread abroad, who have been who have been dispersed due to all kinds of turmoil in their land. Okay, so for various reasons, we'll find out more about that later. They've kind of just been scattered. And James is going to write this letter to that church. As a whole, it's not to uh, the church at Ephesus. It's not at the church at Colossae. It's not to a particular church, so to speak. It's an open letter. That's who this book is to. And so it's not only for them to read as it's divinely inspired. It's for it's for us. It's an open letter to us as well from the pastor James. When was it written? That's a good question. Uh, it's interesting. This is very likely, very likely uh, the earliest penned book of the New Testament. It's interesting to think as you understand that your New Testament isn't ordered necessarily chronologically or it isn't even ordered in the order of the books being written. The book of James, the letter from James, may actually be, by many scholars' estimation, the first letter penned in the New Testament. Keep that in mind. Why was it written? That's always a good question. It's a slightly more difficult question to answer, but um, again, it is, in a sense, an open letter from a pastor's heart. And I'll give you a little bit more on that in just a moment. The final question, this is where we're going to spend uh, our time today, is who wrote the letter, right? If you know something about the author, it always helps understanding what he writes. Just makes sense, right? Well, in verse 1, it tells us that it is James. It doesn't tell us any more than that. It doesn't say it's James, the son of this guy. It doesn't tell us it's James who did this. It is James. And in, uh, in Scripture, we've got... Wow, about four James to choose from. That makes it a little bit confusing, right? And there's been a little bit of debate over this. I'll save you the arguments and just tell you that the consensus is that this James is the James who was the little brother of Jesus. That would seem to be kind of important to know, right? That Jesus had brothers, for one, and to be exact, this would have been Jesus' half-brother because Jesus was born from God and Mary. His other brothers were not born from God but from Mary, and so that sort of makes him... 
half-brothers with these guys. He had, uh, by all accounts, four brothers and even a couple sisters at the least. Scripture says he had sisters, so we know at least he had probably two. Probably the most important thing that we can say about this James in helping us to understand what he's going to write in the letter is this. The Gospels would tell us that James was not convinced, nor were any of Jesus' other brothers, that Jesus was who he says he was. Did you know that? John 7, 3 through 5, amazingly says that his brothers even were not believing in him. So by all accounts, James, during the life of Jesus, didn't buy it. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He didn't buy it. He didn't encourage it. You don't see a whole lot of involvement in it. Kind of adds new meaning to Jesus' sad words. Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Yeah? Brings new meaning to Mark 6. It says in Mark 6, 6 that even Jesus wondered at their own unbelief. His own family. His own household. His own extended family. He wondered at their unbelief. That's the James that wrote our letter. I'll give you another interesting fact here. Even at the death of Jesus, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother Mary, not to any one of his half-brothers, including James, but to his disciple and close friend, John. Remember that? John, here's your mother. Mom, here's your son. The International Study Bible Encyclopedia says, says this. A bond of fellowship had been established between John and Mary that was closer than her nearer blood relationship with her own sons. Who up to this time had regarded the course of Jesus with disapproval and had no sympathy with his mission. In the home of John, she would find consolation for her loss as the memories of her wonderful son's life would be recalled. I don't I had never thought about that, frankly. That James and the rest of the family, they, as far as his brothers go, at least, uh, they weren't really up for Jesus' mission. <laughs> I mean, you would, have, you would have thought that if anybody gets it, the guys who are hanging out with him all the time, who are around him all the time, would get it. But they didn't. To the point that at his death, Jesus looks at one of his disciples and entrusts his mother's heart to one of the disciples and not to one of his own brother's. That's a sad commentary. It helps us to understand where James has come from. From our vantage point, we uh, we wonder how those apparently so close to Jesus could miss it, right? I mean, how in the world did they let that happen? Be careful, though. Be careful. Some of us, maybe who sit here this morning, week in and week out, uh, or maybe every two out of four weeks, who are seemingly so close to Jesus, miss it. Just miss it. Scripture tells a happy ending for the brothers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives, as almost an aside, he gives us this account of Jesus visiting 
visiting people after his resurrection. And in, and in part of one verse, it says, and he, and he made a visit to James, his brother, as if it were this, this special <laughs> sovereign appointment. In Acts 1.14, we're told that all Jesus' brothers were among the believers there with Mary of one accord, of one mind. They were believers. Uh, We don't know the full story. The picture that we have, though, is that during the life of Jesus, they didn't buy it. It wasn't until after his resurrection and he appeared to them that he became who he said he was. With him all along, didn't get it. That's the James of our letter. You would have thought that his own brothers would have gotten it sooner. It's an amazing thought. Can I show you something, though, even uh, perhaps more amazing? It's how James introduces himself here in this book to his readers. Now, if, uh, if you or I were writing the letter, uh, any letter of Scripture, you know, if we were called by God, inspired by God to write any of these letters... Uh, if we were going to write a letter to the to the brethren, to the believers, don't, don't you think at some point in the letter you'd throw in there that you were the James? Uh, by the way, I'm Jesus' brother. <laughs> yeah, I'm his little brother. You might want to listen to what I have to say. We hung out, played kickball, kicked the can. I don't know what they did. You and I would have thrown that in, right? Doesn't doesn't mention it. Even the most humble of us would have found a way to toss that little nugget in the ring. Not only that, check this out. G, uh, James was apparently, according to Acts 15, the lead person in the church of Jerusalem. That carries a little bit of authority, doesn't it? That carries a little bit of weight. Does he throw that out there? He doesn't. Now, maybe all the readers knew. Maybe he didn't have to say it. But maybe it says something about James. I think it does. Here's an important point to note. When writing a letter like this, you understandably need to establish your own authority. Right? I mean, humbleness aside, when writing a letter that is supposedly divinely inspired, that is to lead the church, you would understandably need to show that you have a reasonable amount of authority so that your readers would would listen, would pay attention. Either of the previous facts, the fact that he was Jesus' little brother or that he was a leader in the church of Jerusalem, either of those facts would have been, um, would have been good enough to put him in the category of authoritative. He used neither one of them. In fact, he settled for a, another one altogether, a better one. It isn't the obvious choice, but it will show both his authority and his humility. And how did Jesus teach that one would be elevated anyway? What did Jesus say? If you want to be elevated, you, you take the last place in line. So maybe James was listening along the way. Surprisingly enough, James finds only one fitting description for himself here in the introduction of the book of James. It's the single word slave, or some translations say bond servant. That's how, cho- that's how James chooses to introduce himself to those who would read his authoritative letter. We might not have chosen that word. I think we'll understand uh, I think we'll understand best the remaining words of this entire letter if first we understand this one word 
slave, bondservant. So we're going to spend the remaining of our time. This is the emphasis for the day. This is the whole point of today is understanding this, this word. In the Greek, it's the word doulos. This word emphasizes that the master has complete control of the slave who is totally submissive to him. James's honor and authority is based, ironically, upon the fact that he is a slave of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? His authority is based by his own indication here solely on the fact that he is a doulos of God. He is the bondservant of the Lord Jesus and of God. Now, William Barclay, who's a famous commentator, he draws five sort of implications from this word doulos and from James's words here. Before I give you those five points, and, and that'll be the end for the day, uh, let me tell you why we've started here. Let me tell you why we started here with just this introduction and primarily today, just this one word. The letter from James is what a guy who discipled me called uh, a punch in the throat. It's a pleasant thought, isn't it? That's the book of James. Now, when you're from Texas, you can say that kind of thing. You can preach that kind of deal. He was, and he did. James, boys, he said, it's like a punch right in your throat. And what he meant by that was, this is the Texas to Georgia translation, is that he didn't pull any punches. He's not messing around. He's not playing games. James, and you'll find his letter, were were pretty, pretty direct. There are more commands in this short book than any other New Testament book. In 108 verses, you get 54 imperatives. In 108 verses, you get 54 do this, go, stop. Yeah? You track with me? That's a lot. It's sent out to the church at large. Perhaps I think uh, what many pastors would probably like to say Maybe to their congregations. That's the that's the book of James. You know, it's kind of that message that that preachers don't really ever get to say themselves, but wish somebody would come in and say to their church. Right. And it's not that it's not that pastors don't 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 have it in them or they can't muster such a message as is the letter of James. But the truth is, uh, many of us are afraid that our congregations will will react uh, poorly. Many pastors fear the reaction of the church has too heavily adopted the policies of society at large. Namely, we don't tolerate exhortation and we barely tolerate strong encouragement in today's church. We can't. I can't preach like this. I can because you guys are so, so elevated in your spirituality. But out there in other churches, they, you, you can't preach like this. If the rub is too rough, then we take our business elsewhere. After all, we expect the church to conform to our ways as if the church were Burger King and Walmart. We want it our way. Make no mistake, James, when you read this letter, James isn't mad. James isn't mad. In different times that I've been pretty strong in my delivery and my, in my messages, uh, I'll get people. I, I even had a buddy one time call me. From Texas, which is odd because they're crazy out there. Uh, he, he called me, he listened online. He said, man, are you just mad? <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not mad. But sometimes strong passions, strong, strong desires. They might seem, it might seem aggravated, frustrated. 
But make no mistake, James in this letter, he isn't mad. Unless you consider him madly in love, because he is madly in love with, with his Jesus. Now remember his history. He's not only madly in love with his Jesus, he's, in, he's madly in love with those who name the name of Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ that his big brother died for. So I think the guy takes it kind of serious. Consider the book of James with this in mind, Cornerstone. Jesus isn't just an addition to the life of James. Jesus is the life of James. Now that he has seen him for who he is, he has changed everything. So when you get a guy like that, you're going to get strong, direct words. He's not mad. He's madly in love. Here's the point. He isn't James. He isn't just messing around. And he won't tolerate fraudulent Christianity. Let me say that again. He himself, personally, he's not just, he's not just playing games with, with Jesus. And because of that, he's not going to tolerate fraudulent Christianity out of anyone else. He's that passionate. He's that in love. If I had to nail down a theme for the letter, it would, it would be that very question. Is your faith a fraud? Is your faith a fraud? The book of James, I guess you could say, it exposes pretenders. It exposes pretenders. You want to call the church? Preach James, one preacher said. I think this letter is right on, right on time for the modern church, in fact. Uh, now, that may, uh, that may actually scare you a little bit. I, I kind of hope it does. <laughs> I, think, I think that's good every now and then. I had, a, uh, I had a football coach in high school. Never forget this guy. Coach McCall. He wasn't our head coach, but he was the scary coach. He was the coach that, uh, well, he gave all the pep talk speeches. He gave all the speeches that basically scared you to death and made you do whatever the coaches wanted you to do kind of coach. Uh, he didn't talk much, but when he did talk, he freaked you out, man. All right. Our head coach was kind of the figurehead and he was a great coach, but he wasn't like the, the vision, like the passionate leader guy. And so, so at the end of practice on Thursdays, the head coach would leave. All the other coaches would leave. Everybody would leave water boys, the trainers, everybody would have to leave. And it was just us. And they left us with this crazy one coach, right? And we're all sweaty and we're done with practice and we got a game the next day. And, and now he, he, gets to, he gets to talk to us. And Coach McCall, uh, I, I wish I had a picture of this guy. Uh, he was probably like 6'2", 320 pounds. Uh, he, was, he was a man's man, okay? And uh, he didn't say much. He coached defense. I remember one day he took out my best wide receiver. Uh, the defense wasn't doing their job and he, he, he wasn't happy about that. So he pushed the cornerback out of the way and said, let me show you how to do it. Ruiz, run the next play. I was the quarterback on the offense. I ran the next play. I dropped back. I threw the ball to my wide receiver and he blasted this guy. No pads, no nothing. He was that kind of coach. He'd get in the bull ring with no pads. The way he got us fired up was he'd headbutt you in the helmet with his head. Okay. And he, he just had the best stories. And, and like I said, when he talked, we listened. I remember my senior year, it was the last practice of preseason practice. You know, we'd done like two days and three days and we were, we were dead, but we made it through. And we sat there on the field. Everybody else left. Everybody else had to leave. Coach McCall got to say what he wanted to say. And we're sitting there and we're wondering, okay, what is, how's this guy going to start this off? I mean, this is the first speech from Coach McCall at the beginning of the season. What is this guy going to say to us? And we were all kind of a little, little bit nervous, right? And, uh, 
my senior year, this is how he started out. He said, some of you guys out here are, are just are just frauds. Some of you are just pretenders. Our mascot wore the yellow jackets. He said, some of you, you're not real yellow jackets. And he got real specific without calling names. He said, there are four of you sitting here right now that won't be here at the end of the year. And so you can imagine, right? I mean, you got guys, you know, is, is he looking at me? You know, and uh, I, I was a starting quarterback, and I thought I thought I was one. I was like, that's it. It's going to get rid of me. Uh, but true story, by the end of the year, those four guys were gone. They were exposed. They were exposed. Time told the story. Trials told the story. Pain told the story. They were squeezed, and what came out was not Yellow Jacket. It was something else. I don't know. He saw it right from the beginning. They, they, weren't, they weren't to be there. There was something about that. I just, I just remember thinking that day, I, honestly, I thought, like, I, I might be one of those four. What am I going to do? I've got I to step it up. All right? And I think everybody did. Of course, but those four guys. So what it did was it's, it caused us to ask the question that I think Scripture would have us to ask at the appropriate time. Are we in the faith? That's a wise question every now and then. Am I actually who I say I am? And, and for, the, for the coming weeks, you know the question that burned in my heart out there on the football field was? Um, is there any proof in my practice? Like, I didn't go to practice and not give it 100% because that was the proof that I was supposed to be there. Was there any proof in my practice? It's kind of like the book of James. It's a punch in the throat, guys. It calls the church. Are, are you fraudulent in your faith? Are you pretending? James isn't going to allow that. It's not because he's mad. It's not because he's bitter. I think it's because he's madly in love. That's, that's our author. Now, James, of course, was the real deal. And proof wasn't in his being the brother of Jesus or even being the church leader for the church in Jerusalem. But it was in his being doulos, bondservant. Now listen to these uh, five implications of what it means to be a bondservant and see if you line up, okay? See if you would line up with James. Number one, being a bondservant implies absolute obedience. Absolute obedience. A slave has no rights of his own whatsoever. He is bound to give absolute and unquestioning obedience to his master. That's a true bondservant. Number two, it implies absolute humility. It's the word of a man who thinks not of his privileges, but of his duties. Remember, this is the word that James applied to himself. So it's the word of a man who thinks not of his privileges, but of his duties, not of his rights only, but of his obligations. It implies absolute humility. Number three, it also implies absolute loyalty. A slave has no interests of his own. All right? You getting this picture of what this bondservant is? He has no interests of his own, but is utterly pledged to God. His own preference and profit do not enter into his calculations. Now, this is where it gets hard. This is where it's the punch in the throat for maybe some of you. Because is that true? 
I mean, can you call yourself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Christ in the sense that you are absolutely loyal to him, that you have no interest solely on your own? How many of us can say that, honestly? But you're utterly pledged to God, his own preference and profit are our preference, not our own preference, not our own profit, takes primary place in our life. Number four, William Barclay says that doulos implies a certain pride. Your position as a slave is largely dependent upon whose slave you are. Don't think too negatively about this word. Because to be a slave of the Most High God is actually a pretty good position. <laughs> yeah. To be a slave in the house of the Lord our God is not a bad thing. This was the title of some of the greatest servants of the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all called servants. It's distinctly the title of the prophets. Isaiah, Amos, Zechariah, Jeremiah. Let me give you the last one, number five. Implies absolute obedience, absolute humility, absolute loyalty. It implies a certain pride. It also implies absolute dependence. A slave does not have the worries that free men do. That doesn't sound normal to us, does it? A slave doesn't have, however, the worries that free men do. No worries about his clothes. No worries about his lodging or his food. These are all the master's concerns. The only greatness to which the Christian can ever aspire is the greatness of being the slave of God, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father and Christ are put on the same level here by James. It's as if he sees God and Jesus as one, as he ought. And this, this isn't just his big brother. He is who he says he is. He's the, he's the Jesus that this whole thing was created in, through, and for. So you don't find James referring to his big brother. What you find is James saying, I'm a servant of the Most High God, who is Jesus. It's that important. It's that serious to him. Absolute obedience, absolute humility, absolute loyalty, certain amount of pride. And there's an absolute and freeing Freeing dependence to be the bondservant of the Lord. In the Old Testament, there was given a way for you to pay your debts. All right, now listen to this, because this is where the, the idea of bondservant comes from. Some of you have heard this before. In the Old Testament, there are a couple places where you're given opportunity to pay your debts. Here's how you did it. You could put yourself into the servanthood of to the person you were in debt to. Okay. You basically could become an indentured servant to this person. Scripture put some limitations on this. You could serve them and pay off your debt, but you could only do it for a maximum of six years. In the seventh year, which is marked later as the year of Jubilee, in the seventh year, the year of perfection, seven gets a whole lot of perfect images, right, in Scripture. In the seventh year, God made the provision that at that point you were set free. Your Payment was made in full, and now your master has to let you go. You're free and clear. Your debt is paid. That's a pretty good deal, right? And so you voluntarily put yourself under the servanthood of your, of your master to pay that debt. And at that end of that six years, you get to go free. 
Something happened, however. Very often, the servant would find that the house of his master was the best place for him. It was actually a great place to be. It was a great place to serve. He actually did better in life being underneath this master than out on his own. And so here's what they would do. At the end of those six years, he was set free. But if he wanted to stay, not because he was coerced, not because the master could make him stay, because the master could not. Here's what the guy could do. He could say, I long to be your bond servant. I love my master's house and I love my master. And then there was this ceremony instituted by God in case this happened. And it happened quite often that the master of the house would take the servant. Check this out. And he would take an awl. It's kind of like an ice pick. It's something you would like carve with. right? Imagine an ice pick now. He would take an ice pick and he would take the servant to the doorpost of his home or to the door of his home. right? And he would call his friends around and he would lean his servant up against the doorpost at the servant's, you know, volition. And they would go through this ceremony to show that he's not here against his will. He's not here because I forced him. He's here because he wants to be here. He loves his master and he loves his master's house. And he would take that awl, he would take that ice pick, and he would nail through the servant's earlobe. He would pierce the servant's ear into the doorpost. And he would forever be marked as a free slave willingly serving his master. Are you getting the picture here of what it means to be a bond servant? I don't think that James was an unwilling slave of the Lord against his will. Knowing what you know, the little bit you know about James now, do you see? James, his whole heart was given to his God. His whole heart was given now to not just his older brother, but to, but to the Lord of all creation. This guy is who he says he is. It changes everything. It changes everything. In men's prayer breakfast this morning, I heard um, uh, Elder Radley, he was praying uh, for our men, and we were challenged by one of our men this morning to uh, basically step it up. And uh, as we were praying, finishing up there, um, Radley was, was praying, and what I heard him say was essentially this, God, give our men a strong love for you, because when their love for you grows, then all the stuff that we were challenged to do, it'll begin to happen, and it'll happen in a natural and in a consistent way. Cause us to fall in love with you, God. James was madly in love. When you read the book of James, don't, don't think he was mad. Don't think, you, don't think he, was, he was frustrated, but he was passionate. Remember where he came from. Remember his love for his older brother, but also his God. Remember his love for those who name the name of his older brother, but also his God. And realize that he takes it very seriously. And this punch in the throat that the book of James is going to be over the next few weeks... It's because this guy is, he's found out that Jesus is who he says he is. So the question as we look into this, that we're going to come back to over the next few weeks, and I dare you to come back, is, is your faith a fraud? Is my faith a fraud? Next week, we're going to find out what is supposed to happen when hard times come. Anybody need that? Anybody need a word on what to do when Christians face Hard times? I think so. I think so. Let's pray. Father God, would you create in us uh, create in us this mad love for the resurrected 
man of Jesus. To the point that we would willingly call ourselves his bondservants. That we would say in our hearts, we, we love our master and we love our master's house. And that that would change us. And that we would begin to see evidence in our life that we are not frauds. Because our love will expose us. Our love will expose us. As we go through these sections in the book of James, might they be like like boxes we can check to see, are we in the faith? Are we the real deal? Or are we fraudulent? Are we faking it? Are we pretenders? Or will we find chapter after chapter in the letter from James that we fit the mold? Father, there may be places where we, uh, we're more than just encouraged, but we're admonished here. Help us to find it in love. For the sake of your glory in your holy name. It's Jesus. If um, if you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, you know what, I, I really don't, I really don't know a whole lot. Uh, I really don't know a whole lot about what what the preacher is saying this morning. I, like, I, it's not resonating with me. Maybe you need to back up a little bit and ask, are you in the faith at all? Here's how you do that. Scripture says very clearly that this this is the bottom line. This is the story. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all dropped the ball. We have all messed up. If we were to go through our life and just look at the Ten Commandments, not any of the other added markers, we just looked at those ten, we would find that many of us have broken the majority, if not all of them. They're designed to tell us, Scripture says, like a tutor, that we are in need of something other than our own hands. What I mean by that is we need something other than our own diligence, something other than our own work. We can't do it. We can't make it happen. We can't show God how good we are because we've already exposed ourselves for being for being sinners. Scripture says that we've all fallen short. We actually have declared ourselves in our sinfulness his enemies. He didn't declare us enemies. We rebelled and declared him our enemy. That's the truth of us all. And scripture says, this is the bad news, that if you die in your sins, that you will forever be separated from a holy God in a place called hell. If he is who he says he is, then that should concern us. Because then all this is just just a, a preparation for the day we... We meet our God, our creator, the one who shaped us, the one who gave us life and breath, gifts and abilities. And if we face him with only the work of our own hands, we're never going to measure up. We try. We try. Some of us have been trying for a long time, trying to impress God, trying to work at it, trying to say, God, I, I'm, I'm good enough, hoping that one day when we stand before him, he's going he's gonna to weigh our life in the balance and say there's more good than there is bad. Come on in. That is not the truth of Scripture. 
The truth of scripture says that there is no balance. There is none. We have all tipped the balance in the direction of sinner, rebel. We have rejected the God who made us. We are all fallen in that state, helpless. It's the picture of us drowning. And when you drown, you're not helping yourself. Somebody has to throw you a preserver. Somebody has to dive in after you. A drowning man cannot save himself. It's hard enough for another to save a drowning man. But the story of scripture says that while we were drowning, God dove in. (laughs) From heaven to earth, he took the leap. And he came in, and even while we were fighting him off, he embraced us in grace. (laughs) He calms us. He says, listen, it's not about your swimming here. (laughs) Stop it. Stop swimming. Stop kicking. Stop screaming. I've got you. I've got you. Salvation is salvation. We are saved. We are plucked from death. Here's how it works. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts, convicts us. It says, you are, in fact, what the Bible says you are. You are a sinner. Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. He is God. He did exactly what he said he did and what he would do. And it has accomplished what he says it will accomplish. Now, you receive it like a gift. Our response is only the response of faith. That means we trust. We simply place our trust in him. And we add our own repentance. That just means we look upon our sin and we say we hate our sin. We turn away from it and we run towards our God. Repentance and faith, that's all that is asked of you. And here's the good news. Even your faith comes from God. You see, some of you right now may be, may be hearing this, this still small or this shouting voice that you don't exactly know where it's coming from. It just feels like it's coming from deep within. And it's God saying, repent. That is the Spirit of God giving us the faith to hear Him and understand that we need to be plucked out of our drowning state. You will never impress God with your life. Give it up. Stop kicking and screaming. Let him embrace you. Pluck you out of the depths. You'll either stand before God on your own or you'll stand before God with Jesus at your side. And Jesus will say, by faith, this one's with me. This one's with me. If you've not done that, that is is the first step. And it's really the only reason that God allows this whole crazy world to keep rolling on. Have you ever wondered that? Why does God keep allowing this thing to roll on? Why is all this, I mean, storms, volcanoes, gun shootings, kids dying, illnesses, sicknesses. And let's be real here. Why in the world does he let this thing go on? One of the most important verses in scripture. Here it is. I've determined I'll probably use this in every funeral I do from this point on. God, Scripture says, is not slow about His promises. In the context, that means His promises to come back and make everything right. God is not slow about His promises, as some might count slowness. But in fact, it says He is being patient towards us, not desiring that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. 
What does that mean? That means that why, why is this whole thing still rolling on? It's only rolling on because God is being patient. Because he's waiting on some of you to say, I give up. I understand this life isn't about me. I understand this life isn't continuing to go on so I can make a living for myself and make a career and pass money to my kids. It's, it, I've come to the point where that, I understand that's all just vanity and it's all just, it's just dumb. It can't be about that. God, I, I hear you speaking to me and I give it up. And one day, and one more soul, we get closer and closer to God calling this thing to an end and saying, time's up. Time's up. Right now, he's being patient. So we're going to sing one more song and we'll be dismissed. We're not going to stay long. Why don't you go ahead and stand? Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Don't just sing it. Make it your prayer. Don't just sing it. Make it your prayer. Remember what I prayed at the beginning? We don't come and leave the same way. If you come in here and leave the same way, you've wasted an hour in 15 minutes. Should have been fishing. Should have been out on the boat. Beautiful day out there. If you're not going to change, if you need to make the ultimate change this morning, yeah, I'm going to be standing right here. Let go of the back of that seat and just, just come up and sit down next to me. Nobody in here is going to say, look at that sinner. Look at him. <laughs> Bond servants of the Lord will rejoice. Yeah. Such were all of us before he saved us. Let's sing.